two weeks ago, right, it's, it was two weeks ago, we kind of started this idea, is God real? And we were looking at um, this idea, the beginning of the universe, and there was three causes to, there's only three possibilities for how the universe came into existence, and it's self-caused, uncaused, and caused by another. And so that first argument that we were looking at was the it's called the cosmological argument. I have some, actually some extra copies. If somebody didn't get it, they can come up after class, and, and I'll hand those out uh, for that last class. But it was the cosmological argument. And from that argument, it really it gives us the, the evidence that the universe, it's not an uncaused universe. Because when we say that it's uncaused, we're talking about that it's existed from eternity past. It's always existed. It's always been here in some shape or form. And in the cosmological argument, we see that that's not so. And there's, again, there's the thermodynamics, the second, first, or first and second laws of thermodynamics. There's the law of causality that kind of feed into that. I'm not going to redo all of that. I'm just trying to get it set up for tonight. And so tonight we are, we're going to look at um, what's called the teleological argument, which is an argument from design. And then we're going to look at the moral argument. And again, the teleological will still kind of build into this idea of is it self-caused, uncaused, or caused by another. And then after that, we should be able to make that distinction, which one of those is it that the evidence supports. And that's what we're looking for. Um, so is there any questions? All right, we're going to get going then. So the teleological argument, right? And again, as I said, this is an argument from design. And so when we talk about that, it's when we look at the universe, we see that there's design in it. There's des everything is created to work a certain way. We know that from Scripture that that's true. When God says in the beginning he created, and then he just rolls through that in the first two chapters of uh, Genesis as we're walking through that. And we see he's created everything with purpose and design, and the universe nonetheless falls into that category also. Now, the universe, it appears to be a product of design. All design requires an intelligent designer. We never get design from random orders or orders of, process, of, chaotic, of chaotic order, I'm sorry, and random order. We don't get order from that. We just get more disorder from randomness and from chaos. Okay, and so really what sets this up is there's either a designer, we got this created universe, this designed universe from a designer, or it came from random chances and chaotic processes and mutations. So those are really the only options that we have before us. So now things, when we talk about these material things that when we look at the universe, it comes about in one of three ways. Either it comes about by natural law or chance, accident, or by intelligent design. There's no other way for materialism to come into existence. Those are your only three options. And when we get shape and we get design and we get order, whatever that is, or we get disorder, these are the only three possibilities of how it comes into being. So, right, so we look at this idea, the product of natural laws, this is a product of natural law. The Grand Canyon is that product, right? We know that it was formed through massive flooding. Okay, and so depending on whether you're a naturalist or materialist, this happened over millions and millions and millions of years of flooding, and it came about this way. 
but it's still a natural law regardless on how you see that, right? I don't believe so. It came about by design, and it came about through the flood, and we end up with this. But again, we're looking at the same data. It's only how do we define it, how do we determine that it came about. It's either through random order or design. This is natural law, okay? This is a product of design. This is a product of design. We know this. This just didn't come about through erosion, through earthquakes, lightning strikes, or anything else, the freezing and thawing cycle. We know that these were chiseled out. There was a designer behind it, and there were people who created it. This is a product of design, not Rushmore is. Okay? So now we talk about the universe, or really what we're going to do is boil this down to a galaxy. The Milky Way galaxy is mostly what we're going to be talking about. And there's this idea of what's called a habitable zone. The habitable zone is an area around the star where it is not too hot and it's not too cold for liquid water to exist on the surface of the surrounding planets. Okay, it's got to be just right. You'll see it's a term is called the Goldilocks zone. Not too hot, not too cold, it's just right. And we'll kind of see in a few slides how that works out and why that becomes important for what's called a habitable zone or where life can exist. All right, so requirements to achieve life, right? And these are not all of the requirements. It's just some of the major requirements that must be in existence for life to exist on a planet. First, it has to be a right-sized planet that can hold its atmosphere, okay? It's got to be the right size. It can't be too big, and it can't be too small. It has to have oceans of water to retain its internal heat, right? Without water, you can't have life, period, but this allows for the oceans allow for it to maintain a steady temperature because we have to have that consistent temperature taking place for life to exist or to come into existence even you have to have the right kind of atmosphere so right it's it's important like there's there's some planets that have atmosphere but it's just toxic gases and nothing can exist within those atmospheres so it's got to have the right kind of atmosphere you need a large moon to stabilize the tilt of the planet's rotation on its axis so it has to have that large moon for it and this again these all have to work together and then the planet needs to have a circular orbit around its main star. And really what this is, if it, was, if it was more of an elliptical orbit, man, you would have too many fluctuations that would take place within the span of that orbit, whether it's temperature or, or these other factors. So it needs to be nearly circular. Okay? And then the planet must have a molten core. And this produces a magnetosphere which protects us from the sun's harmful rays. Now, the right atmosphere and the proper orbit, they're necessary also for photosynthesis to take place because we can have water, but if we don't have these things in place, you, can, you don't have photosynthesis, right? You don't get plants that will grow, which produce oxygen for our environment, and it allows it to be livable. You have to have at least all of these things for life to exist on a planet. 
And this is found, like I said, again, what's in the habitable zone. Uh, the privileged planet, you've got, and this is this idea of the privileged, I'm sorry, the, of a, the habitable zone, right? That green area is where you have all of these, those things that I just covered, those five things, they're going to be, they're only going to be found in that zone right there. And so you've got the earth that's represented there in that green zone. If it just moves one, two, three degrees closer to the sun, the temperature's too hot, water evaporates, and life can't exist. Everything would just basically burn up. If you move it two or three degrees away from the sun, everything just freezes. The water that's there will freeze. Life is not possible. Everything just freezes up. It has to be just right. It has to be just right. Right. And so I was just reading some studies getting ready for this. And within our, our galaxy, the Milky Way, they're talking that habitable zone is less than 10% of the area. It's less than 10%. And then once you throw in some other factors, in other words, it's called star poor quality. In other words, you have to have a certain amount of stars that exist within this zone also or within this area. It brings it down to 1% of the area is in that habitable zone. Now that can be a lot of planets and stars can still be within that zone. And for anything in that zone, it has to have at least those five things that we were talking about. So when astronomers and they're out there looking for life on other planets, they don't look outside that zone. They don't look outside that habitable zone because they know it's only in that zone is where you have a chance of finding planets that meet those criteria. So they don't look because they know it's only in that zone can we find life. Okay, they spend a lot of time searching. And so, man, when the NASA was still in place and it was doing its thing, man, when they send the rovers out there, one thing they're always looking for, we think we found water. We think we found ice crystals. They're always looking for that because you have to have that for life to exist or even to come into existence. And again, what they would qualify as life on another planet, I mean, it is a small, invisible microbe, and they would call that life. They're, they're not looking for much. It doesn't take much. Now, a baby in the womb, not life. Right? But you got this small, insignificant microbe out there, and they're like, yeah, that's life. So the criteria changes greatly. But they're always looking for water. But even if they found water, again, you still have to have that right position so that photosynthesis can take place, that plants can grow. Because we have to have that. And so it's a long stretch to get there. And so what are the odds that this would happen by random processes? What are the odds? What's that? Oh, man, it's, it's incredible. The odds are, what are the chances are, if I was to take this deck of cards, shuffle them up, and then I would be able to deal them out in order the first time? How many times would I have to shuffle and reshuffle and deal to get there? 
oh my gosh, it's more than millions in years. This is, I mean, look, I'm going to give you a number. I don't even know what this number is. Look, I'm just being honest with you. I mean, I can say it. I just don't know what it is. But the odds of me randomly dealing a deck of cards in order, it's one in 10 to the 68th power. So that's one with 68 zeros after it. That's more than there are stars in our galaxy. That's more than there are stars in our galaxy. That's a deck of cards. That I shuffle them up and I deal them in order just through random process that they would come out in order. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. But it's greater than that. It's greater than that. The odds of randomly achieving a fine-tuned universe, which that's the universe that we live in, that's the galaxy that we live in, it's fine-tuned for life. The odds of that happening, happening randomly is 1 in 10 to the 120th power. Again, I don't know what that is. I don't know what that is. I just know it's almost twice what it is to get the deck of cards. And this is pretty simple. When we talk about simplicity, it's like this is a simple idea because we're just trying to get 52 cards to align up in order. But when we talk about the galaxy, man, there's so much more that it has to happen, that has to come into place. One in 10 to the 120th power. That's the odds of getting this galaxy by random chances, by chaotic processes. It's impossible. It's impossible. And I had an atheist tell me, well, at least there's a chance. Well, tell me about how much of a chance that is. Well, if there's a chance, it's possible. Oh, well, then there's a chance that there is a God. Well, no, I don't believe that. Well, it's, that's what you believe, but what does the evidence show? And it's amazing just, just the, the sliver of hope that they'll hang on to so that they don't have to recognize that there's a supernatural being that created all things. And so, man, it's, it's virtually impossible. So if it has design, there has to be a designer. There has to be a designer. And so we get back to that idea of how did this universe come into existence? It's either self-caused. It brought itself into existence. We know that that doesn't happen scientifically. We know that that doesn't happen. It's either uncaused. In other words, it's always existed. We also know that that does not happen. So that only leaves us that third option, that it is caused by another. It's caused by something that's outside of time, space, and matter. That's our only option. Now, this doesn't necessarily prove that this supernatural being is the God of the Bible. It, it doesn't prove that. It just gives us evidence that there is a supernatural being that created all of these, this galaxy that's before us. We still have more work to do to get to the God of the Bible is the God who created all things. We still have more work to do, and in the weeks to come, we'll kind of unravel that and unpack some of those things that will get us there. Okay, questions? Yeah. 20th power. Yeah, 1 in 10 to the 120th power that the galaxy, and again, that's, that's not talking about all of the other galaxies that are out there, just our galaxy 
that it happened by random processes. Okay? All right. Let's go on. So this British astrophysicist, Fred Hoyle, he's an astronomer, mathematician, super bright guy over in Great Britain because it says it's British. This is what he says about the whole thing. He says, a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics as well as with chemistry and biology and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. The number one calculates from the fact from the facts seem to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. Almost beyond question. And again, those odds that I was putting, one to the 10th to the 120th power, that's what he's talking about. That this would happen randomly, it's practically beyond question. It could not happen randomly. Guy's not a believer. He's not a believer. He's not a big bang cosmologist. I mean, he, he's, he believes in a steady state theory. Again, he's not sitting there saying this is a supernatural being. He's just saying that to say otherwise, it's almost beyond question. That's what Fred Hoyle says. So then we got the blind watchmaker, right? This is a book written by Richard Dawkins. And he's attempting, right, to refute creation by design. And again, I think I've talked about this. I, I use Richard Dawkins a lot, and I, I probably shouldn't. He's just so easy. He is just so easy to use, and it's just the stuff he says, and you're like, I know you're a smart guy, but you shouldn't say things like that, right? And so Dawkins, right, he believes that design and complexity come about through evolutionary processes or random chaotic processes. That's what he believes. He's an evolutionary biologist. That's what he is. So obviously it's, th that's where he comes up with that. But this is what he says. This is one of the brilliant things that he says. He says, biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. <laughs> Gives the appearance that it's designed and there's another quote, and he says, you just have to keep telling yourself it's not designed. And I'm like, man, if you got to sit there and do this self-talk to believe this, right? If it looks like a duck, walks like a duck, smells like a duck, it's a duck. Nobody's going to refute that. If it looks like it has design, it operates with design, it has design. And if it has design... It has a designer. There's no other way around it. We just don't look up to a, a masterpiece painting. We, who made this? Or we don't look at a book that somebody wrote and say, well, who wrote it, right? Or say, oh, you know what? This is just, this is a tree fell in the forest and it decayed and, and it got wet and berries fell on it and words formed and, right? And we don't do that. And, of course, his thing is the blind watchmaker is what he's talking about. He says if there was a designer, it was a blind designer. And that's, that's, the, that's what he's in his blind watchmaker. That's what he's the point that he's trying to make is that. Um, evolutionary theorists have never been able to prove how design comes from random processes. They only assume it. Because you can't prove that this comes about through random processes. It's assumed. And if somebody's assuming it, they're doing it from a worldview, right? And that's their lens of which they process all the information that they take in. Again, they're not looking at different data than, than we're looking at. 
We all look at the same data. There's not two different data sets. There's one data set. We all look at it. Data is what data is, but then we have to interpret the data, and we do that through a worldview. And that's what Richard Dawkins is doing. He's assuming that these things are so. He doesn't have evidence to support that. So evolutionary theory and crisis, man, I'm, I, just, I just put these links up here. You can, I mean, there's, it's just too much. I could spend weeks just on talking about this evolutionary idea. So you can go to these links, you can go to these YouTubes, and you can see these things, this descent from Darwin. And what we're seeing is, is, man, there are more and more scientists coming out saying there's a problem with Darwinian evolution. There is a problem. This is a theory that does not hold water. We have to find something new. Okay? Um, it's still a theory. Uh, Michael Denton writes his book, Evolution, Still a Theory in Crisis. Uh, Sean McDowell's got a thing, his evolution, a theory in crisis. And then I put this one, this one's, I don't think this one's in your notes. Do we have a need for a new theory of evolution? I don't think that one's in there. I added it after the fact. Uh, the Guardian, it's a, it's a newspaper over in Great Britain. So again, it's not a Christian organization. And again, I was just rereading this article and just kind of getting ready for today. And they're sitting there. They know Darwinian evolution is not the vehicle that created life and got us from, right, from the goo to the zoo to you, right? It, it, it didn't work that way. And they know that. And so they're looking. And again, this, this is not sending them headlong to the Bible and saying, oh, okay, there's, there's, there's got to be a supernatural creator then if this doesn't work. No, we're going to other areas to try to find life. And, and you're going to think I'm making this up. Hopefully somebody's heard about it. There's this idea, and this is where um, Sir Frederick Hoyle, he believes part of this, and it's, it's an idea called panspermia. Right? It's, look, it's, 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 it's nothing pornographic or, or anything like that, right? Panspermia is, is that a meteor came from space and crashed into the earth, but on that meter, meteor was some form of life, and it survived entry into the atmosphere, and it crashed, and then that's how life got here. And so it's called panspermia. And you're like, stop. You need to stop this. I mean, this is madness that instead of turning to, okay, you know what? Maybe there is a cause to this. And maybe this cause is something out of time, space, and matter. That they will not consider. They will come up with crazy ideas. They'll come up with in multiverse. I don't know if anybody's heard of that. It's like, and this is kind of the same idea with evolution is what it is. And it's like, well, if you give us enough millions and millions and billions of years we can get life well what they say is if you give us enough universes out of one of them it's possible that we could have life right um yeah and so that doesn't solve the issue yeah you're right it doesn't solve the issue because you still have those odds that i gave one in 10 to the 120th power it still applies I mean, your odds don't increase because you have millions of universes because they each have to go through that same process of where did that life come from. So here's one. This is an article. Um, 
And, and they go through all of this stuff. They're talking about the habitable zone. And this is how they finish the article up. And he says, well, it's important to remember that however difficult it may appear for life to emerge, it did so at least once in this galaxy. So there is still hope that it could and has happened elsewhere. We just have to find it. That is blind faith right there. Because it happened once, it could happen elsewhere. Which I don't disagree with that. But how it happened once is how it'll have to happen again. It doesn't change that. And so we can go through millions of universes, or we can go through one. The process doesn't change about how it came into existence and how life came into existence. And so also doing this idea with panspermia or multiverse or whatever else, the steady state theory, whatever they're coming up with, they're just kicking the can down the road. Because as long as we say as life came from outer space, how do we test for that? You can't. You cannot test for that. But that's when the science of settled comes out. Well, the science is settled on that. So you're not allowed to challenge that. And then that, uh, like I said, that one, this, this last one up here, the Guardian, this is something that just came out in June of 2022. So it's brand new. It's brand new. June of 2022, that article came out. Uh, questions? Okay, so more. Uh, giving up Darwin, this guy, David Gerlanter, he's a Yale professor, man, a computer science guy, just super brilliant. Uh, this is, you can go there and read this whole thing. He comes out and he verbally just says, this whole idea of Darwinian evolution, there's a huge problem with it. And man, academia came against this guy like, man, in a big way. And he's like, I don't really care. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 did Darwin recant his, his theory of evolution on his deathbed was the question. I've heard that. I've just not found any evidence for that. You know, it, the thing for Darwin is, is his big thing, and, and we're not even going to get into tonight or even this semester, and that is he said for his theory of evolution to be true, man, he would need millions of transitional life forms. And what a transitional life form is, is where we, you know, you find a, a fish turning, you know, a half fish, half cat or whatever it, it came, the land animal. Never mind, I was going to say something like cats. I'm not going to do that. There may be cat people out there. Um, but, and so a transitional life, again, it's, it's somewhere in between where you can see that it's transitioning from one species to another species. He said there would need to be millions, at least hundreds of thousands now, that's back in the 1800s, right? Darwin's talking about this. There's no more found today than he had back then. There's none. Now, there's some things they talk about, and when you look at it, you're like, I'm not seeing the transition. I'm not seeing the transition. And again, when I teach the students, is I say, man, you're going to go to school, and somebody said, do you believe in evolution? Don't answer so quickly. Because I tell them, I do believe in evolution. I believe in microevolution, right, which is change within a species. I just don't believe in macroevolution, which is a change from one species to another. And that's what Darwinian evolution is. It's a change from one species into a brand new species. We've never seen it happen. We can't even make it happen on our own. Right. And so what the professors will do, they'll talk about, well, look at the change in dogs and cats and plants and all of this other thing. And then they said, because that we can get 
a change from one species to another. And it's really a category mistake is what they're making. Because we do get changes within the species, we just never get brand new species. That requires entirely new information to be put into the species, not just a change of it. It's got to be new species or new information to put in. So I believe in microevolution, absolutely. Macro, no. And so I teach them. I said, it's important that you answer that way because you'll say, no, I don't believe in evolution. And then they start bringing up microevolution. Yes, I believe in micro, just not macro. We good? And that's all that we'll get on that. Um, Eight man fades from gradualism. Again, just another article that they have on that. And it's, um, I'm sorry. Again, these are scientists that are saying, that's just, we don't see that happening. We don't see how that could happen. And the evidence doesn't bear that it is happening. Uh, losing support, again, uncommon dissent. One of the biggest problems with Darwin's theory may not, is now his supporters. And again, we have more and more scientists that are saying, that's not it. And there's more than that. Many of them just keep silent and they hold the party line so they can keep their job. So they can keep their job. Doesn't sound very scientific though, does it? Speciation. Again, when they look at the new speciation models, where they're talking is 500 million years, and that's kind of generally the number that they put on evolution from life to get to where we are today. 500 million years is not enough to get the vast amount of species that exist today. You would need four, five times more than that, time-wise, to get the amount of species that exist today. Amanda? Well, the one is you just, we, we never see it. So the primary concern, the question is, is what's the primary concern with these with, with Darwinianism is uh, evolution is, is we don't see it in the fossil record, okay? Because if evolution true, if Darwinian evolution is true, when you, when you look at the geological time scales, you should start out with at the lowest level and you would have amoebas and microbes and all this stuff. And then as time goes by, you would see more complex life forms come up until you say, oh, wow, here's a fish, and here's a cat, and here's a goat, and here's all these other things. But it should be spread out over, man, epochs of time. But when you look at the geological time scale, it's called the Precambrian explosion. This is not in your notes. It's called the Precambrian explosion. And when you look at it, you see in the, in the time scale before the Precambrian, you see just a few trilobites and fossils and things like that. But once you get to the Cambrian level, man, you just see this explosion of life on the scene. It comes in, and it's fully formed. Back when I thought I was smart, and I majored in geology, and I was out in Colorado, and there's this place called Big Thompson Canyon. And so we had to go out, and it's pretty primitive because we had to do it on paper. I know some people are like... <laughs> I don't even know what that is. So anyway, so we had to go out, and from the bottom of the canyon, we, just, we had to just map out each epoch of time. And then we had to just draw in the fossils that we found. And we're just not finding any, but, you know, it's a grade, and I didn't care. I wasn't a Christian, and I certainly didn't care about this. I just wanted a grade. And you get to the Cambrian level, and you see all of this fossil record that shows up. 
And I remember, you know, one of the students said, well, hey, how did, why did this happen like this? And I don't even remember what the professor said. He had some type of thing. But the reality of it is, is you see all of this fossil level in this one layer, fully formed. Right? And so how do we get fossils formed in sedimentary layers? Yeah, it's through the flood. And so what you end up with is, that, man, these fossils, man, these, they were killed by the flood. They were laid down in this Cambrian level. The silt, the mud comes over them, and that's how you get fossils. Only a catastrophic flood could do that. Because it's not just in America that we find the Cambrian level. We can, go, we can go to Russia. We can go to China. We can go all over the world and we find this level, this Cambrian level, and it's full of fossils. Anything before that, it's barren. It's almost barren. And so you, you're not going to go with this gradual evolutionary process where you go from almost none to, man, you have all of this fully formed life or fossils at that point in time. And so you've got the evidences there. And so, and when you look at it and you look at it objectively, you're like, okay, there's a problem with Darwinian evolution. Again, they're not running to the Bible. They're just coming up with other crazy ideas. Yeah. 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 And so... You, yeah, you would. Yeah, absolutely. Just however that, yeah, however that long is. And again, that would get into um, theological evolution. That's not quite the term that I'm thinking for. I mean, there's, there's, there's Christians who believe that God used evolution to bring about life. Uh, but you still have that issue of, well, there was no death before the fall. And again, there's just a lot of things that go on in there. And it's, um, that doesn't work either. That one doesn't work either. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And we're going to see that idea come up in the moral argument as what we're hopefully we're getting. Yeah, we are getting ready to get into that. Um, so anyway, any questions on the teleological argument? Again, I'm not an expert on that. It's just what I've looked into and studied. And it's like, OK, that's what the data shows. All right. So it's an it's an argument from design. So from the from the cosmological argument. And the teleological argument, we answer that question, how did the universe come into existence? Was it self-caused? It was not. Was it uncaused? No, we know it's not eternal. The only other option is it was caused by another. That's your only option. The first two are impossible when we look at the data, so it can only be caused by another. Okay, the moral argument. Moral argument says that because objective morality exists, this provides good evidence for God's existence. That's what the moral argument says. And again, we almost have to go back to that first class time when we met is what is truth? Is there objective moral truth or is there not objective moral truth? And the whole argument hinges upon that. Majority of people seem to have a sense for what is right and wrong. There's a few crazies out there in the world and they seem to be multiplying these last days. Um, but most of us recognize that there is a right and that there is a wrong, right? We know that it's wrong to molest children and abuse them. Other than the abusers, right? Everybody else knows that. Everybody else knows that. 
if there's an objective moral law, it makes sense that there is a moral law giver. Somebody had to give us that moral law if it's objective. If it's objective, which means it's true for all people, all places, and all times. An all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving, unchanging God is the only answer for objective morality. There's no other option. It has to be someone that's outside of time, space, and matter who is unchanging to give us a moral law that is unchanging. It's got to be found in the character of God. So evolution and morality, right? Now, evolutionists will say that we got morality through the evolutionary process. And again, when you listen to it, the argument is, it, it sounds pretty good. I mean, it's, it's not some pie-in-the-sky stuff and how they get there. And it's that eventually we moved from survival of the fittest. I'm just trying to survive. I'm trying to procreate me as much as possible so I can have a bunch of mini-me's running around. And then that's how I survive as far as my DNA. And I just keep passing along and along. But only the strong will survive. All of the weak, you're taken out of the gene pool. You're done. Your children are all going to die off. Grandchildren, if they made it that far, it all dies off because you're a weakness in the gene pool. And you will be removed just through natural processes. And through that, we saw as individuals that we weren't getting very far as the survival of the fittest. And so we really need to come together and work together as a society. Again, it makes some sense. When you listen to it, you're like, okay, I can, I can see where they get that. The problems with that idea is morality tells us how we ought to live. Evolution cannot explain how we ought to live. It just tells us why. It tells us why we exist. It doesn't tell us how we ought to live. How we ought to live. And it certainly isn't an unchanging standard. Right? We only need to look to the last 15 years and we can see the standards of morality change. Right? Before the Obergefell decision, which gave us gay marriage, that was illegal. Right? The government invested in a marriage, one man, one woman, because it was beneficial for society. Again, that's a whole other lesson to get in there. But when we find children raised in a home where there's a husband and there's a wife, they do better all across the spectrum. All across the spectrum, they do better. Right? There was a study I was looking at, and it was, uh, was it 62, Johnson, when we did the, the, the war on poverty, old people? Yeah, it's like 62 or something. Right? Lyndon B. Johnson, he does the war on poverty. We've spent like $63 billion dollars to end the war on poverty. It's like, just give them the money. It would be cheaper. It would be cheaper. They've done studies. You can end poverty in one generation if you'll do like three or four things. If you'll do three or four things, you can end poverty in one generation. One, it's get a high school diploma. Right, not a bachelor's not a master's, not a PhD, get a high school diploma, right? Get a full-time job and keep it. 
high school diploma, get a full-time job and keep it, get married, and have children. If we will do that, we'll eliminate poverty in one generation through the majority of the populations. The problem is, is we've turned that upside down. Right? We have babies. We don't get married. We rely on the government. And we don't graduate from anything. And we just turned it upside down. That's a changing relative idea of morality. We can't get away from God's purpose design and think things are going to work well for us. They're not. They won't work well for us as individuals. They won't work well for us as families. And they certainly won't work well for us as society. God's purpose and design exists for a reason. Um, so anyway, evolution can't explain how we ought to live. It tells us how we got here. Okay? Evolution cannot adequately explain similarities in moral codes across cultures. And again, regardless of the cultures that we go in, you have these very similar moral codes that exist. Murder's wrong. You don't abuse your children. You don't lock down little old ladies in the middle of the road. I mean, we, right, these exist. Right? Again, practically all cultures agree it's wrong to molest and abuse children or it's wrong to murder innocent people. Again, all cultures, cultures understand this. Evolution cannot explain why people risk their own lives to save others or even people they don't know. I mean, that goes against the whole evolutionary process that you would see a young teenage boy run into a burning house to save people that he doesn't even know. Evolution can't, as a matter of fact, that's counterintuitive to evolution. It's counterintuitive evolution that somebody would do that. And not just somebody, it happens a lot. It's not just a freak accident that this happened. It happens a lot that people care for other people. So can atheists do good things? Can atheists do good things? Man, that's, that's not even the right question to ask. That is asking the wrong question. Because in reality, we know atheists can do good things. Matter of fact, I've known atheists that were more moral than Christians, than some Christians. I know Mormons that are more moral than Christians. They do more good things than Christians. It's not, can you do a good thing? The question is, can atheism explain morality? That's the question. What's the foundation that atheists use for calling something good? What's your foundation? Because an evolutionary foundation is a changing foundation. And it changes. And again, that kind of started with the Obergefell thing that I was talking about. Before Obergefell, gay marriage was, it was illegal. And then a Thursday morning shows up. The Supreme Court passes this law that says, oh, gay marriage is now okay. It's the law of the land. And now it's legal. So it gone from illegal to legal in one day. That's a changing standard. That's a changing standard. How long would society last if everybody was in a homosexual relationship? One generation. That's it. Because you've agreed to enter into a sterile relationship. 
I'm getting ready to go on a tangent here, so just know that. Uh, you enter into a sterile relationship, willingly so. And, right, and when Obergefell came, Obergefell came down from the Supreme Court, it was, we have a right to be happy. We have a right to be happy and to marry the people that we love. Look, there's a lot of people that I love that I wouldn't marry. And they wouldn't marry me. And that's wisdom on their part, right? And I don't have to, look, I'm not getting anybody's business. But I've known a lot of married people that weren't happy. I've known that. But the reasoning was they have a right to be happy. That's all we want. And now they've entered into a sterile relationship, and now they want to be able to have children. They want to be able to have children so that they can be happy. I want you to think about what that means. We have turned children into a commodity. And where, as a parent, man, we sacrifice our happiness for the good of our children. That's the way God designed it. But what do we do now? We sacrifice our children for the good of our happiness. And that's what's taking place. They'll expect the insurance companies to pay for this. It's coming. We got it backwards. And that's what the world does. That's that changing standard. When you don't have a moral law giver that you get to make your own laws, this is what we get. This is what we get. Questions? Is God real? I think when we look at the available evidence, it's more probable that there is a God that exists than no God at all. I think the evidence is for that there is a God. Again, we can't prove God exists 100%. And we're never going to. Because if we could, he would be no God at all. He would be no God at all if we could prove it. Now, I do believe that the Bible is the best explanation of the reality of the world that we live in. And it provides the best and most coherent answers to the problems we face. I believe that. Because everything was created with purpose and design. The galaxy that we live in, the planet that we live on, the families that we live in, the churches that we worship in, all of that is God's design. Those are his institutions that he's created. And when we follow God's purpose and design, things will work better. Questions? Oh, wait a minute. Your homework. Again, is the science settled? Again, five, six-minute video. And then do you have to choose between science and religion? You have to choose. Those are your two videos to watch for this week. Uh, next week, we'll start. Uh, it'll be another two-part series on uh, the authority of the Bible. Is the Bible true? Okay, questions? Yeah, and, and I love that because truth always wins. I mean, that's, that's what we have to remember is truth always wins. And again, you know, we, again, we started this whole thing out, why apologetics and this 1 Peter 3, 15, that we should be able to make a defense for the faith. Well, you know what? It's, most of us don't even, I mean, we know it's there. We just don't, we don't, we don't do that. That's a command that we're able to make a defense for the faith that we have. And the problem is, is we can't. 
We can't do that. We've given up the intellectual high ground. And we've just, we've just pushed it. And we're, we're, we're going to leave that to science. It's not that we're anti-science. We're just going to leave that to somebody else. Man, science exists because there is a universe that's designed by a creator. That's the only way science can happen. And we've given up that intellectual high ground. It's like, we don't, we don't need that. We don't need apologetics. We don't need to understand worldviews. And that's where we're at today. Because we don't understand apologetics and we don't understand worldviews. Again, apologetics saves nobody. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ does that. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ does that. But what apologetics does, it strengthens our faith. It helps us defend the faith. And it helps us bring other people to the faith. That they'll be receptive to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not tremble. Do not be dismayed. But again, our faith has to be strengthened. And what is it? Because if, man, if it's like I believe the Bible, and then you've got somebody that's just sitting there bringing haymakers on you, and you can't answer them, eventually it's just like I'm just going to be quiet because I don't have an answer. Or maybe there is no answer, and the Bible isn't true. And that's where many of our youth are today. They can't answer those questions. They can't answer them. And we're doing a disservice to that. We're doing a disservice there. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and, and again, that's whether you're dealing with science, whether you're dealing with Mormons, whether you're dealing... I mean, most people, they don't know their faith. They don't know it. And you get them outside of their pat answers, they're done. Unfortunately, that's the same thing that we find with, with Christians today, too. We get them outside of, yeah, the Bible's true, Jesus, Moses, Noah, oh, the flood. And we're done. Well, I believe the Bible's true because the Bible says it's true. That's not going to carry you very far in the world. It's not. We have to give them answers. And when we give them the answers, because there are answers to be had, because God's a knowable God. He wants us to know that. He doesn't want us to live in doubt. He's given us a world. He's given us a mind that we can know these things. And we need to live these things. And we need to share these things. But we have to train the church to do that. Ron? Yeah, yeah, there's a ton of it. And the more, the, the more scientific evidence that's coming forth, the more of it, it supports the Scriptures. I mean, we're going to see some stuff in archaeology over the next few weeks that's just mind-blowing that they're finding even today. And again, each one of these lessons just builds. It's just, a, it's just another level that's built on the other. And when you stack them all together, it's like there is a God. He's created all things. He sent his son Jesus, and he's coming back again. It just all stacks up, and it works when you look at the whole Pandora or the, the scheme, the picture, the painting, the tapestry that's out there. It all works according to the biblical narrative. It all works. All right, so next week we'll start biblical authority. Thank you very much. If you have any questions, I'll be hanging around a little bit. Thank you.